Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I had I literally had to reinstall Call Recorder. Uh, you, what? Yosemite. Yosemite Sam, as I like to call him. <laughs> so I was going to – that was on my list of things. I had uh, Yosemite here on my list of things. It's uh, number uh, six. Number six. Well, we're going out of order. That's okay. We're going, let's start with six. Okay, so how's Yosemite, Ben? Oh, so beautiful. Okay, I haven't, I, you know, so I didn't, I didn't upgrade um, because I was in Brazil and I, it was, you know, slow internet and potentially, you know, if just in yeah. case on the off chance it bricked my machine, I wanted to be home when 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 it was my machine was bricked. So yes. and then I was like, okay, I'll do it the first weekend, and then the first weekend came and went, and I didn't do it, and um, and now I think I'm I'm just never going to do it. I'm just gonna. <laughs> it, no, you're going to do it. It's. It's beautiful. Yeah, I've I've heard it's I've heard it's really nice. So um, it it is like I mean it's just little things like mm. literally the font change matters mm. to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the font is that they use. I haven't done the research into this, Don. Mm. Um, but it's beautiful and it, it it just it's soft on my eyes. Mm. Like like a like a like a lamb like a, uh, uh-huh, like a baby uh-huh. lamb on my eyes uh, <laughs> but um let me give you a warning i download yosemite uh reinstall call recorder ah, and okay. there is a new version that came out on october 29th well you know it's funny i i got the message from the call recorder guys that there was a new version that went with the new version of skype and so i upgraded so i'm i'm running be all right yeah, I'm running Skype seven point something, and then upgraded to Call Recorder new dot whatever, and uh, but not running Yosemite yet. So, well, you'll be ready. You'll be ready for Yosemite. I don't even know what uh, Skype version I'm running. Uh, six some six nineteen. Huh? Yeah, I'm not, I'm old school. I'm gonna go back see if I can go back to five. <laughs> well, I do have uh, I do have. Uh, on my machine, I have something called Skype New and Skype Old, and 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 Skype New is newer still, and I think Skype Old is version five or something. Do you have so you have Skype really old? And well, Skype no, because new. you know I thought that might happen, but when I uh, when I upgraded Skype, uh, the old the the new Skype just went on top of the old new Skype, and now it's just new Skype. Awesome. <laughs> People love our Skype talks. Yeah, this is this is why people tune in. Yeah, every once in a while, um, when someone says, oh, "I love the podcast," um, do you know what the second comment is? I, I wish, wish you guys... talk more about Skype. Yeah, yeah I wish you talk more about <laughs> Skype. Exactly. Oh man. Um, so we got our Skype talk out of the way. We got our Yosemite. So Yosemite is great. Um, it has. Uh, should I, wait, should I start downloading it right now and upgrade yeah, oh, while we talk? I, I think that'll be perfect. <laughs> I think that'll be perfect. That shouldn't shouldn't slow things down at all. Um, the so like every time uh, Apple does an update of their operating system, mm-hmm. my computer gets faster. Mm. It, and it did the startup and shutdown. Oh, is um, it's very fast it, for wow. for whatever reason. It's very very fast. All right. Well, and that's like that. that's that's cool. I'm I'm uh, I, I wrote down Yosemite. I made a check mark, and now I'm making three stars next to that. That's oh, going to be like reminder to upgrade to Yosemite. I, I thought we were, didn't we come up with a rating system a couple of episodes ago? I think you gave that. <laughs> I believe it's not three stars. You just gave it three thermometers. Three. Uh, okay, they look just like stars, but okay, three thermometers. <laughs> Hey, um, speaking of thermometers, <laughs> we so you know I have a favorite thermometer, right? Like, I've, and this is not a um, that's not a segue into a uh, sponsor because no one's sponsoring this. <laughs> but I just <laughs> want to tell you that I talk that I write a lot on Barf Blog about the Comark mm-hmm. PDT three hundred, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I talk about it here. So mm-hmm. someone at um, 
uh, at the people that make Thermapen sent me Thermoworks sent me a Thermapen. <laughs> yeah, that is that is that is my favorite thermometer aside from my um, eye grill. Um, I, yeah, I, we have uh, we have thermal pens that we use for inspecting dining halls here at Rutgers, and then we we have one that uh, we were using at home and finally wore that one out, and so. Uh, Chris then upgraded our home thermometer to uh, a new thermal pen. So, yeah. Well, it's it's a good it's a good tool. So anyway, <laughs> just you know, I always I think the the ThermalWorks person was like, "Why do you always mention someone else, our competitors?" Here, I'll send you one. Hey, they should they hey. should sponsor the podcast. Yeah, whoever whoever wants to sponsor us will take it. Well, you know, already I I don't like your thermometer, Ben, because I go to I, I googled Comark and I go to Comark dot com, and it says uh, the content on this page requires a new version of Adobe Flash Player. And uh. as far as I'm concerned, any thermometer maker that requires Flash on their website, even if they sponsor the the podcast, is dead to me. Well, that I, I could see that. Oh, uh, but but hmm. All right. Well, so Comark uh, Comark Instruments uh, works, but but Comark. Corp doesn't. I just, I just texted you a picture with my with, with my oh, nice. It's Man, huge. Look it's at you. I know. Look it's like you. a it's a flip phone. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly the one Kristen got. It's actually that same color. Oh, cool. Well, anyway, there you go. Thermometers, they're important. Gotta like gotta be comfortable with your thermometer. You look very comfortable. I'm very, I am very comfortable. We'll put, I'm, I'm, let's post that picture. We'll put that in the notes and yes, we'll put it up. Um, hey, so. Um, so I missed, I missed you on the, on the, on the Skype, on the Skypey cause you've been away. We haven't talked on, uh, on a podcast in a month, but I did see you last week. Yeah. We all saw each other in real life. That was kind of cool. It was cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm over the not looking straight into your eyes when I'm talking thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's weird, right? <laughs> Don't know where to look. I, yeah. But now it's, it's okay. Yeah, I have a picture okay. of you on my Skype. That's all official <laughs> that I, that I talked to, but, uh, yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Fun. Um, I don't have a picture of you on my Skype. You do? I don't. You don't? I don't. No. I guess maybe you've you've uh, added a picture into your into your profile, maybe. Oh, or? Do I do I do that? I don't know. Someone did. What I what I see is um, it looks like a vaguely egg shaped sphere <laughs> floating over what looks like butt cheeks. <laughs> that could be me, Don. That's a picture of me. <laughs> um, I my I. There are a couple of people in my life who've told me that I have a very egg-shaped head, so <laughs> uh-huh. um, so let's let's just we'll leave it at that. Um, so so I got I, I mean I got lots of stuff I want to tell you about or okay. I want to talk about. All right, um, and then I, none I got of it's something to talk about too, just in case uh, you have nothing to we, talk. We so. I, this could be like this could be one of these super mega podcasts where we like we just get it all out. Mm. Um, so let me tell you about thermometers again. Okay. I oh thanks for sending me my picture. Um I uh so here's here's a cool thing that that my hockey team has been doing that involves thermometers. Okay. Um so so we so it's a bunch of guys and it's been beautiful here, you know, it's not the summer mm. and mm-hmm. it's not the winter, so it's mm. not super cold. It's getting a little chillier now, but um a few weeks ago we had uh we would go into the parking lot after our hockey game at like nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. Someone would bring bring a, a grill, as they're mm-hmm. known here in the south. Mm-hmm. A barbecue. Well, what are, what are they known other places? <laughs> a, a barbecue, known elsewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, portable barbecue. Port it's a grill, just a grill. Okay. Um and uh, we'd uh, we'd cook up brats, mm. or as they're known in Canada, sausages, mm. um, and uh, and we'd sit there after our game, uh, drink some beer in the parking lot, and and eat brats. Mm. So 
here's the the organization of my hockey team. Someone says, we're going to do this. I'll bring the grill. Everyone else respond to the list of what they will bring. Mm. So what did I bring, Don? Thermometer? Brought the thermometer. (laughs) Um, My friends thought that it was funny first. Like, oh, look, the food safety guy's bringing a thermometer. Then when I tempt all the the hot the hot dogs the brats they mm-hmm. thought it was less funny they're like what are you what are you doing um, someone served me one off the grill and said do you think that it's done and I said oh I know whether it's done and I whipped out my Copart PD <laughs> and stuck it in there uh, and uh, and did my thing so they made a lot of fun. Well, and wait was it done it was it, it, it was not done mm-hmm. and I put it back on mm-hmm. so they gave me. Um, uh, a lot of chirping, as as we call it in the the hockey industry, that they they, they uh, made a lot of fun of me on hmm. on site. You know, t- chirping, chirping does not sound hockey like. Oh, it's, you know? it, I mean, chirping is like something a little birdie does, and that, and I, th- I you know I'm, I picture hockey players as being you know big burly dudes that don't chirp at all. That I think that's why we call it chirping. Huh. It's because it's just something a little bird does. Why are huh. you ch- Why are you chirping me? Um, huh. <laughs> so, I, it's a whole different different side of hockey I never knew about. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, ornithologists. Huh. Um, I, I, I guess I, I guess I stopped playing hockey before the, the, the chirping, serious chirping. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember checking. I, I think that was when I was I lost interest. <laughs> yeah, the chirping. <laughs> well, maybe if you knew that there was chirping that would come later, I could have I could have stuck through the checking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. could maybe. <laughs> uh, so at the end, all the chirping. Guy comes up to me and goes, Can you get me one of those thermometers? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Perfect. And I said, Yes, yes. So I've now supplied my hockey team with thermometers. Nice. Yeah. It's like the greatest thing. It's uh it's spreading spreading the uh the food safety word. I like it. Good. Um, That's well done. Well th- done. Thank you, thank you. Um I am going to send you something that you're gonna watch offline. Okay. Um it is called some letter Kenny. Oh, I've already sent it to you. Mm. Letter Kenny Problems. Mm. I think I sent you a link uh, about what it was like to grow up in my in my town. And it, the this is like some YouTube channel um that has got like all very Ontario based with the accents. Mm. And they use the term chirping. Mm. And in fact a hockey player says to a guy who who lives on a farm that is some of the finest chirping I've ever heard. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I remember watching this with yeah. like there's guys and they like yeah. It's uh, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty funny. Pretty, 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 pretty Ontario-y. Mm-hmm. Very, very. So letter Kenny problems. It's coming up. Um, we'll put we'll uh, connect Link to, to it. Yeah, in the uh, in, in the, the show, show notes, notes as the they show. say. Yeah, that's what they say. Um, hey, so you had um, you had a fun week last week. You uh, you saw us an internet celebrity. I did. So I oh. Oh, sorry, Number. Letter Kenny problems is playing in my oh. ears here. I, I'm uh, <laughs> I, I paused it because we want to link to it, but uh, but we don't. I don't want to listen to it right now. You don't want to listen to it. Right yeah, now. this that's a pretty it's a pretty funny video. It's worth linking to. Yeah, so so I had a um, uh, really awesome uh, experience this week. So last week, so I let's see when I woke up on Tuesday morning, I was in São Paulo, Brazil, and um, I flew to Houston, Texas. 
because there's a direct flights between Sao Paulo and Houston on United and uh, it was and so so just since we're like you know explaining the whole story in excruciating detail um i i used uh, my uh, uh miles and 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 things to upgrade myself to business class and business class was not full at all which was really weird I just don't understand why why the flight was was not full. Anyway, it was very bizarre. But I got got a little bit of sleep. I got to Houston. I got my rental car. Uh, got there at the crack of dawn and drove not to Dallas where I was going to meet with you for the NeuroCore meeting, but to Austin, Texas, home of many awesome things, including Austin Books and Comics, where I, I stopped by and picked up a, a trade paperback uh, for as a gift for uh, my son, and then also uh, had lunch with Dan Benjamin and uh, Hattie. His assistant. We and love, that was, we love them. And that was awesome. I mean, they were so kind and so gracious. They, uh, they had to go to Ikea that day because they had shopping to do. And they, uh, suggested a barbecue place that was close to Ikea and that was also close to the way that I would be going out of town, uh, towards Dallas. And they were, they had, they were full of, uh, questions about food safety. They, they well, so first of all, I think the first thing is that they just talked so much about barbecue and all the great places in Austin and all the great Texas barbecue. And so then there was that. And then after they finished telling me about barbecue, they proceeded to badger me and, and badger Maybe they, they proceeded to ask me lots of food safety questions. Excellent. And uh, and then and then Dan said, "So what do you want to know about uh, about me? About five by five? Ask me anything. Ask me anything. Ask me. Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. Ask me and, anything. And I think he was genuinely disappointed that I didn't have any like really like I didn't you know want to know the inside scoop on anything. Although we did end up talking a little bit about the talk show. And why, uh, why you know that that whole thing when when uh, uh, Gruber left the five by five network and, and, and started doing his podcast somewhere else. So we talked a little bit about that, but, but no, it was, it was great. And, and Dan and Hattie both were so kind and so gracious. And despite my best efforts to buy them lunch, they insisted on buying me lunch. And, uh, oh, we had the, just the most amazing, amazing barbecue. Awesome. And, um, and you guys talked about me, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that part. Yes. You guys talked about me, right? All the time. Good, good. That's, uh, all, so, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> so, Dan, Dan really does know that you work for North Carolina State University. I can't believe that. I can't um, believe you're not the CDC. Um, and uh, yeah, no, we did. We did talk about you and uh, how much he's secretly obsessed with you and wants to know everything about you. Ask, Dan, ask me anything. Ask me anything. I'm going to say that when I when I talk to him. <laughs> Which I was supposed to do. I had this like plan that I was going to drop by their um, their studios because they had moved and, um, and and everything looked cool. And uh, this was back a few months ago. And then I went to Austin and, and all Danny and I did was um, eat like 17 meals in one day. And we didn't go see Dan, mm-hmm. Benjamin, or Hattie or anybody. But uh, – but you got to go, and that's awesome. It's yeah, cool. it, was, it was it was very cool, and we talked about. And I said, you know, ask me ask me anything about <laughs> safety. Consider me your your food safety expert. <laughs> yeah, ask me anything. Um, and uh, and and you know, we talked about maybe um, being on the podcast again, being on a podcast again if they wanted to do something around food safety. So anyway, uh, we'll 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 see. They um they were very like I said, very kind, very gracious, and it was terrific to. Uh, to be there and to meet them and uh, just to sit across the table from he's a, he's a, Dan is a very intense looking dude. He's like just it. very, very intense. 
So anyway, great, great, great times. Uh, great, great discussions. Good, 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 good week all in all. I got to see you later in the week. I so know. all in all, just a fantastic week. We had a fun time. I, uh, you know, you mentioned this already, but we were at this um, uh, stakeholders and collaborators and PIs and co-PI meeting for the NoraCore project that uh, that our good friend um, Leanne Jacobs runs, and uh, it was it was really interesting. I mean, the in, in general, we've talked about meetings and productivity and how uh, sometimes those two things don't go go together. But I I, I was um, I always I always trust that I trust like everything that Leanne does, <laughs> and I trust <laughs> that that if I go to something that she's putting on, it'll be interesting. Um, and it was there was there was some really great stuff in the afternoon. I was only there for one day, but there was the afternoon of the uh, of the first day of the meeting. Um, she'd asked the stakeholders, and so this is the uh, restaurant industry and the grocery stores and the cruise ship industry and the produce industry and the shellfish industry, all the talk about, you know, since the last year that, that has gone on, what, what kind of questions do they have? What do they need? That, that whole stakeholder engagement discussion and, and just the open um, floor kind of discussion was so like good, right? Like so kind of valuable stuff. Um, and, and interesting. And it, and it, uh, I shared with you afterwards, it's the kind of stuff that keeps, keeps our attention because you can go to a meeting and see someone's 30 minute PowerPoint. Um, and, uh, and you don't get a whole lot out of it, but when you hear conversations and people arguing and, and that there, none of this stuff's really clear and none of it's, um, easy and we all have different problems. That's the stuff that's, uh, that, that, that's really, um, intellectually valuable makes it so it's not like a um a, a, a draining uh process so so i so i enjoyed that i like that part of things yeah and it's i i and certainly uh it was unfortunate that the meeting was scheduled um to last to be october 30th and then october 31st which is which is halloween and a number of people had to leave early uh, on the 31st um, because of get, needing to get home for their families for trick-or-treating. And unfortunately, you were not able to be there on the Friday morning, but it turns out that was also awesome that there were presentations by students and postdocs, which, you know, I, I looked at that and I said, yeah, you know, like I, I guess uh, it just it seemed like, oh, really? Do we need to do student presentations? But they were – every single presentation was fantastic. Awesome. I mean really – Good, really interesting stuff. That they were clearly students, but man, they knew their material. I asked a few of them some hard questions, and nobody, you know, nobody shirked from that. They 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 answered them uh, really well. And then we had great uh, breakout groups and discussions. Um, really good, stimulating discussion. I sat in the uh, risk assessment and our epidemi- epidemiology and risk assessment group, and we had just some really good discussions. So I, yeah, again, I have to say I'm I'm so impressed with the how that project is going. And and all the great stuff that we're doing, we're not, you know, we haven't got norovirus solved yet, but boy, we're we're making great progress. You know, a lot a lot of good science going on. It's it, it is a cool thing to be part of. Um, not just you know, I I, I think USDA NIFA took um, some uh, some flack uh, by putting together these really really large mega uber mega projects. I never use the word Uber, um, mm-hmm. but these you know seventy five or not twenty five million five year projects to get everybody in the field together, and and I think this one this one works. It, it has caused 
uh, not caused, it has allowed um, us to to take some risks in certain aspects of projects. I mean, I've, I've been working on some um, social media stuff that, that uh, on its own, we probably couldn't get funded uh, to the level that, that we're able to um, to peel some, some money out of this project uh, to do, to test some stuff that might not work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's some... Uh, you know, um, there's some good collaboration stuff that that happens just sitting around um, talking about it, and we're all at a certain understanding and level of the problems around Noro, and and just getting that that group together is is really good. So actually, um, one of the uh, um, the leads for the extension outreach portion, Angie Fraser and I are talking this afternoon about some. Um, some collaboration stuff about how we can we're, we're both interested in similar things we both have similar data sets how do we how do we put them together or how do we make sure we're being consistent um, with our stuff and that's you know that's I think that's the goal of these big things um, but it doesn't often happen uh, happen that way and this this one's been really good and the I mean I say this one the the other one the, that I'm on of a similar ilk uh, with uh, STEX is is also very very good and collaborative and and there's um i've just been fortunate to land on both of these things at the right like total right time of my career to to meet people that are interested in the stuff that that i am and and build some bigger ideas going forward so yeah it's hey usda thanks a lot for making it all happen (laughs) yeah yeah and i mean you know it's uh that's a lot of money to spend, but at the same time, it's not that much money relative to all the money the government spends on all kinds of scientific research, and especially with something like—I mean, certainly E. coli in uh, um, beef is, is is a definite problem, but norovirus. There's just so many problems because it's a virus because we can't culture it. You know, the 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 the, the directed effort of you know that you can get with a big project like this that's twenty. Five million dollars over five years is is just you know that's just what that kind of a problem needs right that concerted focused effort a little bit of flexibility to do some stuff that maybe you couldn't otherwise do kind of think outside the box you know stuff it it really is the, I think that the 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 most the, the the best way to approach a, a complex problem like that yeah and the getting the right amount of people in the room together to talk about problems on interpreting data and not, not, you know, these one-on-one conversations that might happen and, and that, that everyone's kind of comfortable with each other because they've, you know, this is year three of this project is really, it's very fruitful, I think on, on stimulating the, the next steps of what, what we do going, going forward. Um, it's, it, there, there are people like uh, like Aaron Hall, um, guy from uh, CDC, who's who's really um, driven a lot of the epidemiology um, aspect of the project, and also around epi at, uh, at CDC related to norovirus. Is is a, is someone who I didn't know personally, had not met uh, until this project happened. knew obviously knew about what he, you know his stuff and what he did, but it's been um, it, it's very. It's very useful to be able to connect with with people around a, a project, and, um, and and I'll come at things 
starting with the same understanding of what the objectives are and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and and Leanne's done a great job of engaging folks in the industry as well, so that there's you know there's the I mean it's a great a great team at CDC, it's a great team at multiple universities, um, but also it's great industry involvement as well, so that you know it it definitely big projects like this might have a tendency to kind of get lost in, you know, ivory tower pie in the sky stuff. But because the industry is there, because we're all focused on solving the problem, um, yeah, you can have those pie in the sky theoretical discussions. But at the end of the day, it gets brought back to, okay, so how are we going to make a difference in a way that matters to people that are affected by norovirus or or whose, whose businesses and livelihoods are affected by norovirus? Yeah, it's cool. It's good. So So we did that last week. That was fun. Yeah. Um, what else? I had something else that I wanted to, uh, to tell you about. Uh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. This is this is recent. Like, so mm. recent. I, I texted you um, 10 minutes before we were supposed to, to podcast. Is that mm-hmm. what you call it? Record, record a podcast, podcasting, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. we do here. Mm-hmm. And said, I'm going to be 10. And I didn't right. finish my text, which meant, right. which was, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Mm. <laughs> and here's why I was 10 minutes late, Don. <sighs> okay. I was 10 minutes late because I had a, a really um, interesting lunch with um, with an individual who um, sent me a PowerPoint uh, presentation um, uh, about a month ago that was entitled Food Safety Culture. Hmm. And um, this individual was is working – um, as I've as I've now since learned after lunch today is working not not in the food safety realm of of extension but in community development, hmm. and she's been charged with um, creating uh, like a a whole curriculum on creating a food safety culture, and it's actually she called it something else like the culture of food safety, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so. So a month ago when I got this this PowerPoint, she asked me if – she's like, I just came across your name. Meanwhile, the, like this is someone within my organization. Um, I just came across your name. Um, you might have some interest in this. Do you mind taking a look at, at what I've got here? So I looked at the PowerPoint and and, and I, I felt – and I was you know kind of sent, sent back some comments like, I don't think that what you have here is really food safety culture as what we kind of discuss in the literature. Um and it's not – I mean you're, you're focusing on good agricultural practices, which are risk management techniques. But food safety culture is a little, a little more. It's about the organizational behavior um, and the organizational support to make good risk management decisions and to enact those risk management practices, those standard operating procedures. And you know, it, 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 uh, food safety culture is not about identifying hazards. It's about what do you do once you identify them and how do you foster this, this value system? And she goes, yeah, I don't really have any of that. I'm, I'm really just talking about good agricultural practices. And I was like, yeah, I know that's kind of what I'm saying. Um, so I sent her a bunch of stuff on food safety culture and then she sent me a message back and said, I had a chance to look at it. Can we have lunch? So that's where I was. So, what and there's there's a method to my bringing this up um what what is becoming i guess more commonplace in and Doug's written about this and I've mentioned it in um Frank Giannis um you know one of the the pioneers of the concept of food safety, safety cultures talked a little bit about this is that the this concept this i don't know 
I'm not sure, I guess concept or, or portion of our field about this organizational behavior stuff is is becoming very commonplace as a term. Like you, we can see it in webinars about learn about food safety culture, but it's not really what the literature has. You know, it's different. And so, so it was, it was this really interesting conversation today uh, with this individual, and, and she said, "You know, I don't, I don't think I think what you're talking about here is really kind of too advanced." For the audience of farmers that I'm looking to connect with, that you know, they're, they they're not even thinking that food safety is an issue. How do they create a, a you know a good food safety culture? And and so it got me you know thinking as as, we're, as I was having this discussion is that she's she's right. I guess the the, the idea of, of food safety culture for me, and this is a question that I want to post to you on because you see it from the outside, but it is a concept that is not a it's like advanced food safety stuff right you if you identify the hazards and you put things in place you really only start getting to where your food safety culture is as an organization once you try to enact these things but you can't have a you can't you can't try to um work on your food safety culture without having all the the prerequisites in place not to borrow something from HACCP like that you have to have hazard identification you have to have plans you have to have a training program you got to have all these things and then you can start like looking at a at how do you change the, the culture so i i it was a really kind of interesting like very uh, you know very recent fresh in my mind conversation that that the concept is not something that's easily taught and it's really not part of how do I convince somebody that food safety is important? You can't convince them that food safety is important by talking about food safety culture. They, they, they're only really ready to talk about a food safety culture when, when, they're re, when they're realizing that they have things in place, but they're not working or people aren't doing them or, or whatever. So being someone not like as close to it, I guess, as, as I am, what's your – What's your take on all this like nebulous thing that we've talked about as food safety culture for a while? Is it you know what do you where where do you place it? <laughs> do you know what I'm you know what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah, I know I know what you're asking. Uh, let's let's we'll place that in the parking lot. Um, ah. But yeah, it's and food, food safety culture has really I think it's it's become a buzzword that everybody loves to talk about. Um, and and that's a problem because it's in danger then of not really being a thing anymore, right? It's like to a certain extent this happens with risk assessment too. People are like, yeah, we need to do a risk assessment or we need to do a risk analysis of that or this or you know risk based is probably better. Like, oh, we need risk based blah blah blah, right? Right. We need a risk based metrics for our food safety culture. Um, and yeah, it's you don't. You don't want to talk to somebody about how to get food safety culture. It's more like they have to want a food safety culture and then and then you can tell them how to get there. And just as a related thing, this is something that came um, my way and your way via Doug. Um, and I'll, I'll paraphrase from the email and you'll see, you'll see where I'm, I'm going with this and how it's relevant. Um, uh, this, the email is entitled Food Safety Concerns at and then insert name of big company here. Um, 
and uh, and and it's basically just a link to uh, a Dropbox uh, account which has a video. And um, <laughs> Doug says uh, this sounds legit. Uh, note ironic tone. I'm not sure I even want to open the Dropbox. And then you said, "Yeah, me neither." Yeah. And then I said, "Well, I'm a You'll sucker go. for these things. Yeah. My my vaccinations are up to date." So I peeked, and it's basically a nine minute video. Um, with no audio that I could discern, and it's just text and images, um, just sort of like a, a basically a very intense um, uh, bandwidth way to show someone a PowerPoint presentation. Um, <laughs> and so it's text, text and images, um, and the, and it's just a, it's organized into it's a nine it's nine minutes, and it's organized um, into a, a couple of different categories. It says hand syncs must be acceptable accessible, and then it's a series of twenty or twenty five images of hand sinks that are not accessible. Um, it says food temperature must be controlled. And then there's lots of images of food out of temperature control. And I thought about this earlier in the podcast, uh, mostly hot dogs out of temperature control. I thought about this as you were That's telling yuck. your brat grilling story. And then uh, concerns about chemicals. And so cleaning chemicals in the wrong containers, mislabeled containers or poorly labeled containers. Um, then it kind of jumps back to hand sinks and and missing soap in hand sinks, which you know we know is a problem, right? Say hand things, sinks have to be accessible; they have to have soap, they have to have towels, or you know people can't wash their hands. And then a series of images regarding insects and rodents, moldy foods, uh, out of date pizza dough, and and th- so this is a person that is obviously very concerned and seems to be at the end of their rope to the point where they made a video and just blasted it out to a bunch of people, including Doug, I guess with the idea that Doug would kind of pick this up and, and maybe do something with it. Um, and, and that's a company that we won't name, but that's, but if I said the name, everybody that listens to the podcast would know they're a big food service contract company. Um, that's a company that doesn't have a food safety culture. Right. And and clearly yes. this is this is a person who was hired to be a district safety manager with this company um and who's like I said at the end of their rope because there it's like uh, how can how can he how can he do his job when when clearly there's just a lack of interest in in getting uh getting you know anything done to fix the problem so I, I, yeah, I, I feel for people out there that are trying to create this food safety culture, but talking to people about food safety culture is not the way to make it happen. Right, because, right. Because if you don't care, and again, let's talk, let's bring it back to farmers, which is where you started the conversation. If the if farmers don't think food safety is important, then no amount of blathering on about food safety culture is going to do anything. To, uh, to to make them understand how to create a food safety culture because they don't think food safety is important. Boom. Okay. So next problem. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, I, I mean, I think you, you you got it right on from from where where I was feeling on this was the this individual I was having lunch with. She said, "Well, I'm really trying to make this easy because, um, you know, because the concepts in in gaps are sometimes difficult and farmers are turned off by it and." And, and and they don't maybe recognize the the problem. So you know, I thought I'd make, start with food safety culture, and I was like, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. There's a couple things here that that it isn't easy. I mean, if it was easy, then everyone would do it. <laughs> and and food safety culture is not it's not it's really not the starting point because you got to have all this other stuff in place before you can start messing with the the implementation support system. 
And and even I mean the I, I'm I'm glad you brought up that that example that, that Doug shared with us this week because that is a is a is a company that that, that I've seen their all the prerequisite stuff. Like I know what their what their food safety training looks like, and I know what their plans look like, and I know what um, what they have in place. I know they've got all the hard stuff on, on the hazard identification stuff done, and they and they still can't get the culture part right. Like it's the it, it, it's more than um, I don't know. It, it's it's more than oh, let's give them an introduction to what culture is and then they'll understand how important having a good culture is and then they'll go learn that, oh, yeah, people might get sick and, and, and it's going to impact our business. And then they'll do the standard operating procedures. And then now that they know that they have um, those things in place, plus we told them early on that it was really important to have a good culture about these things, then that will magically make them all do everything right, which I'm paraphrasing and being very trite in my comments. I mean, that's not what, what this individual said, but that's the along the track of, of what's um, you know, the flavor of our of our conversation was, um, so you- yeah, and and I think I think food safety culture is hard, right? Because ultimately, what do you have to do to have a food safety culture? You have to do the right thing, and it's and you have to do the right thing when you're busy, and you have to do the right thing when that means throwing food away that is that is adulterated or potentially adulterated it means spending extra money right it's like it's going to cost something either in terms of time or money or or resources or something right if, if food safety culture was easy <clears throat> everybody would do it it's it's how do you do it when the the crap has hit the fan on a friday afternoon when people are calling in sick or or whatever what do you do in in those tough situations to make the right decision and and it has to be and then if if a manager make does the right thing in terms of food safety then that manager can't be later reprimanded by their boss for why did you do this thing they need to be rewarded and say yes you it was tough you did the right thing you cost the company some money but you did the right thing in terms of food safety so thank you and well done right, right? yes yeah Exactly. And, and it's making those hard decisions and having the value structure in place that says we make hard decisions because we, because it's better than not making those hard decisions. Or we make, we make that we err on the, the food safety side of things and, and losing money because the, the consequence is, is larger um, if we, if we don't. And everyone knows that. So, so we're trusting that, that they're all going to, um, you know, make this consistent decision. Um, I, in, in the conversation that we, that we had at lunch, this individual said to me, you know, what, this is her saying, what I see as food safety culture is, is like when you're in, in a home and everyone in, in that home washes their hands when they're dirty. And I was like, well, no, here's, here's my, let's use your analogy. And here's my take on, on, on a food safety culture in, in that situation. Washing your hands when they're dirty is really a risk management decision. Recognize that there's a hazard. I do something about that hazard. The food safety culture part of it is the supporting environment that says that's the right thing to do. And so it's I wash my hands as an individual because my brother and my sister and my mom and my dad, they all wash their hands at these times. That's just what we do in our house. Right, um, and we and we wash our hands even if – 
it means that the food is on the table and it's getting cold and we wash our hands even when it's inconvenient and we we make efforts to wash our hands even when we're cooking in the backyard and we and we yes. wash our hands when we're out as a family and we wash our hands when we're at a relative's house when it's clearly an inconvenience to everybody because that's just what we do right yes i mean that that is that's exactly it it's that this is this is our culture. This is what what we what we do, regardless of why we have this culture. This is just what we have kind of all agreed on, or or someone's instilled into us that this is why what we do when we do it. How do you create that? Well, you do that by saying, by mom saying, for every thirty um, really great hand washing choices that an individual makes, that they get a pat on the head or a gold star or whatever. They get praised for for making the right decisions, and then when they're when 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 dad sees them not making that right decision and not washing their hands that that they're reminded in a in a way that that says well you know what we do in our family is this so um so that it's not that they're reprimanded but there are consequences of their actions um and and that that everyone kind of knows it it's not just we wash our hands like that was the 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 piece and and that was uh, you know, why I wanted why I wrote down in my note to to talk to you about it is because that's a really clear analogy and to me, but this isn't a, a concept that, that I, I, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe we haven't just done a good enough job explaining it to, um, to individuals. And that's why it's become a buzzword and why it's, well, yeah, we have a good training program and we have an audit system and that's our food safety culture, but it's, it's all that stuff that you just described on, we do it, under these circumstances because we know it matters and we value it. And that's, that's, that's food safety culture. Right. We wash our hands even when it's inconvenient. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and I don't know how you do that in a presentation, especially when, and again, you know, it's easy for us being academics to talk about this, but some of the best presentations I've heard are from my colleagues in industry, but they're limited by what they can say mm-hmm. and they're limited by the pro- – when they, they can't talk about problems or, you know, that they're very limited in, in what they're allowed to say regarding problems in, within the company. But yet that is ultimately – when you get down to it, the food, food safety culture is what you do when things are going wrong, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about, we've talked about HACCP before on the podcast, but we've also talked about uh, getting things done, the productivity system from David Allen. And, you know, one of the things that he says is, you know, get, your, your getting things done system, your, your, your GTD system needs to be something that you can do when you have a cold and you're miserable and you're overwhelmed with everything else, right? It has to be the system that you can still do even when you're under all that load. It's same thing with food safety culture. It's what, what you do even when you're overwhelmed and going flat out, you know, but yet you can still, you can still manage to do that. That, that's ultimately what, what it becomes. Right, right. And it, and it and it's subject to change or at least the the inputs are subject to change when when new information comes up and let me make that less abstract and go back to the hand washing example so if all of a sudden mom finds out from her her reading of uh, of the hand washing literature cuz she's designated as chief hand washing operator or officer in in the family if she finds out that um that washing hands for 
26 seconds matters more than watching them for 20 seconds, then it's her job to make sure that everyone knows that. And it's, yes, we wash our hands, but now we wash them a little differently because we have some new, a new piece of information. And um, it, it's an iterative process to those, those inputs. And, and it's, I mean, it's even, you know, brother being, in, I don't know why I'm using this family, this fictitious family that doesn't exist. Let's call them the Batses. Um, the brother, yes, let's, yeah, let's, um, the brother bats, um, says, you know what? Once a month, I'm going to check with the water system to make sure that the incoming water is safe that we're washing our hands in to take it to the very extreme. But that's really what it is. It's, it's that someone's in charge and they're constantly looking for more information and that it's what we do. And it's all that stuff wrapped up in, into one thing. And that, that's maybe why it's hard to explain to people. Like maybe, maybe it takes someone who's in it to, to, to identify it. I, you know, I never, I, when, when I talk to, um, to health inspectors, you know, the, and environmental health specialists, the people that are in and out of, um, restaurants or, or other food businesses every day, they, they probably have a way better concept of food safety culture than anybody else does because they're seeing so many different types of businesses, so many different you know, especially the ones that are really into um, into risk factors, they're they're seeing you know different applications, and, and probably have this feeling immediately of what what it's like when they walk in, what that culture is, and and I think they call it things like confidence and operator or whatever. But they're they re, I mean, if we want someone who's going to teach food safety culture, it's going to be them that to really sort of see it because they've seen so many different examples more than than you and I have. Yeah, and they've seen good examples and bad examples. And I think fundamentally that's what you need to teach food safety culture. I mean, you need good examples and bad examples. And because you, you you know, and and examples of when, I mean, it's great. Everybody can have a food safety culture when things are going great. Right. It's right. Just, like I said, I hate to keep coming back to this, but when things are really going wrong, that's when having a food safety culture matters. Right. And, and how do you how do you instill in people that that's the right thing to do even when it's inconvenient? Right. I mean, that's ultimately to me, that's what it what it, what matters in terms of food safety culture. Good, good. Well, thanks for letting me talk through that. <laughs> sure. I need I need some help with something. Oh, you need <laughs> help. Too. Yeah. So. Um, ben, how do you talk about risks? Oh, how do you... <laughs> I've got to give a talk next week, which is officially uh, my slides were due Friday, and then I get, got it extended to Monday, and now they're they're over do... overdue. So I need to do my the, do these slides, and that's the topic that I've been given um, to talk. And again, it's a talk to a company uh, that is uh, you know that has a good food safety culture, but I but but the spin on it is how do we talk about risks? So, so I, we do have the benefit of you asking me this question when I saw you. Yes. And, and so I've been primed a little bit on that. Oh, excellent. Yes. And so I, my initial response, which I'll give you the same initial response, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about risks, frankly, mm-hmm. period. Um, but um, since you shared a little bit more about the situation, mm-hmm. um, I think there, there's a couple of things. And it, it, you want to know who it is you're talking about risk to because whether it's their customers, whether it's their suppliers, whether it's their employees, whether it's their senior management, you, you need to know what they're going to do with this information about talking about risk 
and what you want them to do with it. And each of those audiences are going to have a different um, responsibility and a different um, uh, would would require a different way or a different um, uh, set of information to talk about risks, a set of data or whatever. Um, but also, I mean, the, the I guess the third thing that comes to my mind is, and I'll I'll give an example um, from from something that I that I went through uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, where there was um, a situation with a, a group that that I work with uh, here in North Carolina, where um, there might have uh, there was a, a steamer um, that. Uh, an environmental health officer had found um, elevated levels of lead uh, in a water source for that steamer, and they're steaming vegetables in it. And that environmental health officer um, wanted to know whether they needed to inform the people that had been eating those vegetables that they might have been exposed to lead. And, and so, when, when there, there's a lot of uncertainty in that question, and it starts with lead not being water soluble. Um, and so the steam itself touching a vegetable probably doesn't have any lead in it. And, and our best guess would be the, the risk um, or, or the hazard would, would come in contact with, with the food from splashing. And, but really they were asking a question of, well, how do I talk about risk with the people that might have been exposed to it? And, and you know, the third part of my answer to you is you talk about all the uncertainty around, around the risk and, and talk to people about how you made the risk calculation or how you made the risk decision and said, with the best available message, this, the, or best, best available methods is what we have. So, so you, you talk frankly about it, you figure out who it is you want to talk to, and, and you'll frame those questions or those discussions differently for those audiences, and, and then you talk about the uncertainty around risk. Well, yeah, and which which brings me to another point, which is, again, a conversation that we previously had offline that I want to return to, and that is that, you know, as scientists, we are, well, and as, maybe as risk scientists, we are hopefully increasingly comfortable in talking about uncertainty, but where I find I get, a, and this is twice now, both in situations where a potential product was facing a recall where there was a hypothetical salmonella uh, contamination event where... Wait, wait, hang on a second. Hypothetical salmonella? Is that a, uh, a subspecies? Is that... Uh, salmonella hypotheticum. Hypo- hypotheticum. 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 Yep. Yeah, hypotheticum. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. good. Thanks, Salmonella sorry. hypotheticum. Um, <laughs> and... People really don't understand risk and they don't understand quantitative risk assessment. And I guess that's my fault because I'm a quantitative risk assessor and a professor, so I should be able to teach them about this. But people fundamentally don't understand uncertainty. They don't understand risk-based quantitative calculations. Um, They don't understand that there's nothing magic about what I do. It takes numbers and it combines those numbers together into a spreadsheet um, with maybe some simulation or modeling around it. But ultimately, you know, those numbers have to come from somewhere. They have to come from data. They have to be expert opinion. Um, And that's the only way to get to where you have 
a risk, a quantitative risk-based answer to something. And people just really have a hard time with that. And especially, I think, people that are not scientists, people perhaps in the legal profession. And again, you know, nothing against lawyers. Some of the smartest and most interesting people I've talked to um, in my career have been lawyers. But they have a very different worldview. And, and again, I think the general public as well, people, I think they maybe they sort of understand intuitively the idea that everything is risky. But ultimately, when you tell people that in the face of a crisis or a problem, they really don't like that. They really would much rather hear about how you can fix the problem with certainty. Right. And uh, I, I mean, I think you bring up the the crux of the situation when it comes to communicating risk to to consumers or to the public it's the it's the same kind of thing that not i i, I think that in we've got we've got some literature on this um i think that people can under, uh, that can, people being the public can can handle that uncertainty i think we have um uh uh traditional communications individuals um, within government, within business, within academia, um, and and definitely within the media that would say, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that uncertainty message. And so we've seen over, uh, you know, over time that there isn't a lot of uncertainty in, in the food safety messages that are out there. They're very much absolutes. Where, I mean, a very, like a perfect example of this is is our endpoint temperatures um they're they're modeled on or they they are outputs uh of um a, a standard of a five log reduction for you know whatever pathogen is of in, of interest uh for um certain you know in certain foods or and actually i say five log i think in if we look at the usda um, numbers in Appendix A, it's six and seven log reduction in salmonella. But those endpoint temperature, time temperature combinations, it's not a this is going to get to zero. It is here is a log reduction that we find acceptable for our standard. There's a there's a whole bunch of uncertainty, like not a whole bunch. There's a little bit of uncertainty um, in in those numbers, but it's not an absolute. It's not an absolute zero. But we but but that's. I don't know. I guess the we're in this situation because we because they're in, they're uh, historically we've said well we don't want to get into the messy piece of of uncertainty, but but I think we're we're seeing um, you know with certain stuff around food that people can handle some uncertainty and they'll make their decisions. Well, and and actually this this is a very nice segue to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is a book that I've been reviewing um, on food waste. And this is this is a topic that we've talked about before on the podcast um, quite some time ago. I was asked to be on a TV show, and could, it might have even been about a year ago when I was going to China, but I couldn't make it. And so, um, um, I don't know if he's a friend of the podcast, but certainly a friend in real life, uh, Randy Warabo, uh, went on this show. And it's this whole idea that as a culture, we waste an incredible amount of food, and there's the the dates on food, shelf life dating of food is a complicated mess, and. People People throw out food that's good. And I was approached by a woman who is writing a book for 
the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is an organization that I don't have a lot of love for. Um, they're the people that were responsible for Alar and Apples, and I think that they they have a lot of kind of alarmist um, literature out there. And I don't I don't agree with their their point of view on a lot of things. But hey, this person came to me and said, "Hey, look, I'm writing a book on food waste. I need a food scientist and a food safety expert to review it." And 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 would you do that for me? And, and by the way, we can pay you, you know, a little bit of money. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm happy in, to I'm in. It. Yeah, <laughs> even without the money, they're getting a good. They're getting good. They're not. They're not. They're not getting charged the standard rate. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know, I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. And it was a. It was you know hours of work. So that I that I didn't have to do, but that you know the fact that I was getting paid something for it was 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 made it made it worthwhile. And I feel like I should you know explain that in in issues of you know full full disclaimer. So. Um, but this is a really interesting problem. How do you get people to say, well, gosh, this wrinkled up red pepper is probably perfectly safe. Um, how, how could we get people to not throw food away? And again, this is, again, this is something we've talked about before on the podcast. I've, I've had conversations with uh, Deb Palmer, uh, my colleague at Rutgers who works right. in nutritional sciences, who works with people uh, in low-income groups who are food gleaners or food scavengers and who are buying dented cans at the supermarket because they're really cheap. And, and so how do I... Yeah, of course, the the standard extension advice is don't buy dented cans. But when you are working with an audience that is already seeking out stuff that is less expensive, how do you help them? Again, this comes down to risk. How do you help them manage that risk within the context of the fact that they are they earn, you know, they have such a they're living at such a subsistence level that they they are seeking out these potentially risky things, and we can sure we can talk all day long about how they shouldn't do that, but ultimately they're going to do it. So how do we help them manage that? And so it's it's been it's been a really interesting job looking through the book and 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 tr- again trying to to get out scientific based information, trying to correct some of the misconceptions that were in the book you know, just fundamental misconceptions, but, but, but also help in a lot of cases where she really was kind of on target. And the the fact that we do have such a confusing mess with regard to dates and people don't know what dates on foods mean. And for the most part, they are based on quality. They're not based on safety with maybe some exceptions in terms of eggs and maybe some exceptions in terms of deli meats. Um, and then the the one that that had me really stumped, and again we were helped out by again um, our friendly friend Randy Warabo, because one of the things that she talked about is you can take um, fruits and vegetables that are maybe a little bit past their 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 optimum date and use them to make infused vodkas, which is of course a really cool thing that uh, you know people is very fashionable these days. And then my concern, thinking about again, we talked before on the podcast about Pruno and alcohol risks with Pruno. Um, is there a risk of botulism from making infused vodkas? And again, Randy dug up a very nice uh, reference um, from Journal of Food Protection showing that about six per, at about 6% ethanol, you really do seem to mitigate the botulism risk. So that gave me, again, some practical advice where I could go and say, okay, well, if you assume that um, your alcohol is 40 proof and you're diluting at 50% with whatever you're infusing, that leads to 20% alcohol and that's way above the 6%. You know, if, if, we, if we take this, you know, this paper as being, setting saying six percent is safe so there we go now again there's uncertainty in in all of that but at least at least i kind of have some confidence that okay if i'm at 20 percent, that's well above 60 percent. i'm probably going to be okay with that right and can i first say that i love you for all this <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. um and, and, and it, 
because it's it's you know what's it's way easier to just say no you can't do that or or I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it with it, right like it's yeah it, and that's too too often I think we have um, who we have colleagues that that do that that say oh well USDA doesn't recommend that but to to really take this as well no let's let's actually calculate this out let's look at this what the what what are the hazards? What are we going to be impacting here hazard-wise by doing this practice? And, and, and let's see if we're actually increasing or decreasing or, or whatever. And what are the, some of the uncertainties around it? That's, oh, that's a science-based approach to this, this kind of stuff. And, um, and I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you for that. And I try to do that um, with, you know, with, in, in the area that, that I work in. But it is – because that's what people want to know. They want to know how come – how come I can eat dented cans because I have been for so long? What is, what is the risk you know, associated with it? And, and, and tell me about the, the science behind how you made that, that determination. Cause if I have all that, then I, you know, maybe I'm going to still do it, but I'll know what the risk is, or maybe I'm not going to do it because you've given me some information that I'll change my mind with. But, um, it's, uh, it, it ta- what you, I mean, what you just ex- described, it's not like you, um, you answered that question in, in you know twenty five seconds of typing it out. This takes some work to to do, and um, and that's all the. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe I I'm listening to too many podcasts, and someone said this recently. Maybe you said it. All it, it, you know, all the easy questions have probably been answered. We're looking at all the hard questions now. Well, and and I think for too long, and this is what I and you know, and it's it's fantastic that you kind of get this light bulb moment so early in your career because I think I was at it for a lot of years before you know doing a lot of modeling and risk assessment before I realized like, hey, wait a minute, why why is it forty to one forty? And what about listeria? And what about yersinia? And how do we? Let's yeah. Let's not lose that forty to one forty, but let's let's think about this. And again, serving on the uh, IFT potentially hazardous food committee, and then the NACMIF challenge study committee, where we were sit- sitting in a room with a bunch of smart people and arguing about this. It's like, well, you know what? It's not it's not a pH of four point six and a water activity of zero point eight five. It's actually a little more subtle than that. And let's let's figure out how we can be a little bit more subtle but at the same time still give people numbers to base their decisions on and trying to make it be science-based and trying to make it, you know, it's like the Einstein quote, you know, everything needs to be as simple as possible but no simpler and you need to be able to explain it to your grandmother, right? I mean it has to be simple but we shouldn't but, – but when it comes down to saying, oh, gosh, you know, here, it's – yeah, the food, was, the food was above 40 degrees for one second. You have to throw it out. No, that's ridiculous, right? But then – but where's the – where do you get from that to something that's a little bit more sensible? And again, to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, that, those were the kind of questions that Dan and Hattie were asking me and that I was doing my very best to answer and say, yeah, look, these are the things that we know. For sure, that's a bad thing. Um, right. But here are some things where we just really don't know, and and but he, but here's the here are the here's the way that I would think about that problem. Being being somebody that's thought about food safety, you know, for for twenty plus years, here's what I know, and here's the way I would think about solving that problem. And I'm sorry that that's not a nice, neat answer. If you want a nice, neat answer, it's no, don't do that thing. But if but if you want a more complicated answer, well, you're gonna have to you're you're gonna have to do a little bit of work to come with me on this journey as we work through to figure out what's the appropriate thing in this circumstance. Well. 
And I, I think you just kind of answered the question yourself, Don. There's some personal growth that I see in you today. <laughs> how you talk about risk. Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, that's that's a really great way to, to look at it is I, I can talk about risk in in certain ways. I can talk. I can give you the the simple answer that 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 is kind of partially incorrect, but it's the most conservative and easiest way to to tell you no. Um, or I can if you if you come along with me and you trust me a little bit on this and you give me some inputs and we have a dialogue about it, we can talk about risk in a, in a more frankly manner. And, mm-hmm. and 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 that's I mean that's what I'd tell that um, that group next week. Um, you know, if I was if if I was in your in your position mm. um, to to get asked about it, that that um, that there's going to be a certain portion of their audience, who whomever that is, that 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 not only can handle that this messy, complicated piece, but really wants it, like want want is is inquisitive around these things, and and will probably make better decisions if you tell them that it's messy and explain why it's messy and, and how you you arrive at what you do. And then there's going to be a portion that's like, no, just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. so that's it's it, it's it's fun it's fun stuff i and i can't i i can't take any credit for being on this um path of enlightenment around um messiness around risk calculations it, it really I, i'll i'll tell you and this is some some current content because by the time we post this it'll be right after thanksgiving um, it has to do with 2014, right? Right. 20, 2016. It'll 2016. be the, yeah. If it's still even called Thanksgiving, then, um, it'll be, uh, we'll get it. We'll get it done before Canadian Thanksgiving. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that's 2015, 2015. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there was some stuff that, that when I was, I might not even have been a grad student. I might've still been, um, an undergrad when I was working for Doug and he was exploring, um, and I don't even know how he got into it. We should ask him this. But he he had this thing around thawing turkey on the counter mm. and about the risks associated with it and how the partnership in the U.S. and the Canadian Partnership for Food Safety Education said, do not ever thaw your turkey on the counter. And and so he, he and, and a Ph.D. student, Bonnie Lacroix, um, wrote a paper, and I don't know where it was, the Canadian – Journal of, you know, food and blah, 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 um, about uh, the calculations that would uh, – and, and the literature that says, no, if, if you're within these parameters, you can thaw your turkey on a counter. And when I read that, that very, like, sort of clear thing that, that, that I could get my hands around because I knew about eating turkey and I knew about Thanksgiving and I knew about thawing a turkey because I had seen it done before, and then to see this – four or five page paper on here are the parameters on how it's okay to thaw your turkey this way and and what you know, what what the risks are associated with thawing your turkey this way. But at the end, the biggest risk reduction step is just cooking your turkey to 165 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever whatever the conclusions were. I'm paraphrasing it all now. That 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 really opened my eyes up to not this stuff the and, and was the draw was the, this stuff is hard to communicate and it's and it's messy and that's and, and that's okay because we because in science we are constantly dealing with um looking at da- data to make decisions that's not the exact stuff that we need it doesn't answer the the question really really cleanly or or succinctly and uh, that's i mean that's where the for me that's that, that's where the light bulb was turned on 
Yeah, and and in fact, um, that was one of the bits of information that was in this book on food waste about repeating that government dogma about you have to thaw at room temperature, you have to thaw in the refrigerator, you have to thaw under cold running water, you can't thaw on the counter. And of course, I immediately thought about that. And and I sent the person a link to the BARF blog post, and we'll link to it here. Yes, Virginia, you can thaw turkey on the counter. Um, And also a link to the information on Pete Snyder's awesome uh, document that has that information. Now, I would love to be able to link people to the the paper uh, that you guys uh, wrote uh, or that that uh, Doug Doug says the group wrote. Unfortunately, the link, the barfblog.foodsafety.ksu.edu link does not work anymore. So I'll, I'll find um, that for us. Find, yeah, yeah, find that and, and, and we'll have that added to the show notes. But for sure, uh, yes, Virginia, you can thaw turkey on the counter. We'll link to that and we'll also link to uh, thawing at ambient temperature on the counter from Pete Snyder. Yes, yeah, good. That's That's how to talk about risk, Don. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I think don't be afraid to tell people when you think they're wrong, even if it even if it goes against dogma. Right. I mean, that's that's fun to do for sure. I love I love explaining to people how what they think that they know is true is, in fact, not true. But at the same time, you have to be helpful at the end of the day and, and tell them, OK, well, yeah. So here here's what you need to do, what you need to think about right, uh, right. to manage this. Yeah. And and that. Maybe that's the new tagline for food safety talk, and it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I tell people that they, they too can become expert food microbiologists. They just have to learn two things. Number one, um, that depends. And number two, it's complicated. It's complicated, exactly. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I just sent you the link, but just if, if anybody's following along, listening to this at like one and a half speed, um, <laughs> <laughs> like we know some people do. Um Animals. Yeah, animals. The The uh, paper is called Consumer Food Handling Recommendations. Is thawing turkey a food safety issue? Got it. And it uh, appeared in the Canadian Journal of Dietetics Practice Research in 2003. LaCroix, Lee, and Powell, 2003. Excellent. We will link to that. We will. We will. Um, yeah, so it's, that's some, some good stuff. Um, hey, there is something else I wanted to talk about, Don. And okay, it's about, Ben. It's about communication. <sighs> Okay. Um, I I don't know. You've been you've been traveling. Um, when when I travel and when I didn't get sick when I ate fresh produce in Brazil. Oh, good job. Hey. Unlike certain other people that were wimps, apparently when they went to Brazil and and didn't eat fresh produce. Hush, hush. Won't 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 name any names. (laughs) I have a I I make some risk. (laughs) You have a note from your doctor. (laughs) Yeah, I have have some risk management decisions that I make. Don. I I wasn't actually talking about you, but (laughs) (laughs) of course you weren't. I know that. Well, well, yeah. So I was uh, last year when I was there, I was having I was having lunch with uh, Anderson uh, at the University of Campinas, and he says, "You know, I see you're eating fresh produce. You know, when Martin Vieman was here last uh, last month, he didn't eat any fresh produce." I said, "Yeah, Martin's a wimp." <laughs> hey, I also did not eat any fresh produce when I was. Yeah, there. you're a wimp too. Yep, I'm a wimp. Um, I just don't know. I don't know anything. And not that I know, well, much you know more and here. Obviously, there's a risk of eating fresh produce in Brazil. There's also a risk of eating fresh produce in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Like, you were no, trying, that's to, fine. trying to make a point. I was, but who knows what it was? No. Okay. Here it is. So hey, there's there's a hep- so when when <laughs> I go to um, meetings. I do two things. I sit and write mainly, and I stay on top of the news. And so I like turn out a bunch of 
blog post last week. According to people at the NeuroCore meeting, you type really loudly. I know. How ridiculous was that? In fact, so loud that someone was going to say something like, can you check your email later? But then when he found out that I was typing a barf blog, then it was okay. <laughs> that was amazing. That was amazing. I, I really don't understand why that gets you a pass. Either you're noisy or you're not. <laughs> Do I type with authority? Is that what's going on? I had no idea that I type so loudly. You type, you type loudly, yeah. Really? You can you hear me? Ty- are you, are I can you, hear you typing. Yeah. Are you not like, now? But at the meeting, I, could. <laughs> I was. At, I was at the same table with you. Did, was it distracting? Like, do I need to worry about this? How do I? How do I fix was that? It, was it distracting? It was you have the to way think about to fix it. that is by not caring, Ben. Oh, well, it's dumb. <laughs> um. <laughs> um <laughs> It was loud. It was – I wouldn't say it was distracting. It was definitely noticeable. But really? no. I mean what would have been distracting is if you were snickering and laughing and telling jokes, right? I mean that would, that would have been annoying and rude. But no. I mean I just – I expect honestly – I mean as someone who likes to work during meetings and to do email and to try to multitask even though multitasking is – we know multitasking is a myth. Um, right. I like to be productive in meetings and, and yeah, maybe a little bit, of, little bit of ADD going on there where I need multiple – stimulants going you know going to to stay focused but yeah it was noticeable i wouldn't say it was distracting i uh so i have a second secondary follow-up question to this <laughs> secondary infection secondary yes. infection of type typeitis <laughs> salmonella typeitis um i i used to when i was um work you, know, the, you, you saw our our lab at the university of guelph it was mm-hmm. like this big room, right? Mm-hmm. So we had mm-hmm. uh, tables and chairs lining all over the place. There were workstations. It was Doug built it, basically saying he wanted a newsroom, and so he got the you know the biggest room possible by saying, "I don't need any other offices. I don't need an office. Can you just give me a big room and I'll put people in it?" And, mm-hmm. he, and it worked. Mm-hmm. So the, so I think there was like ten or twelve of us in there in this this big room, and we all had our own spaces. And I worked really closely to the information center folks, and so they had this these four cubicles. Mm-hmm. that were back to back and and I used to work and I still do work a lot with my headphones on listening mm-hmm. to music and my my good good friend and colleague Sarah Wilson um who used to sit on the other side of the cubicle um and she was there sort of all the time running the the information center she said I can tell when you're really into writing because you're listening to music loud enough that I can hear just a little bit of a faint bit of it but every 30 seconds or so you let out these really large sighs <laughs> like <sighs> and she goes it's every time you're really writing something you're sighing all the time and i was like really and then i became very self-conscious of <laughs> sighing so who knows maybe that's what oh, i was doing did you what, notice what, my sighing i did not notice your sighing what what was the what was the sighing i don't know i didn't even know i was doing huh. it. i still don't know if i'm doing it huh yeah because so, people have people have called me out for for my sighing too is it inappropriate sighing? Notice, I don't know about inappropriate, but noticeable. Noticeable, inappropriate. But you know, that kind of stuff is what you can get fired for in academia. <laughs> yes. Inappropriate sighing. So oh. for those who don't know what we're talking about, there was um, something that, uh, that Doug sent Don and I that Don then put on his Facebook page about a professor in the UK who was – um, who was who fired, according to the news article, for his ironic comments and inappropriate sighing uh, at, at, during meetings, and his general all, all about all around bad vibe, right? Something right. like that. Oh, fantastic. So, anyway, 
I've just we've just had a diversion there. I wanted to ask you about hepatitis A in Maine. Did you see the, this post I wrote last week? I did. Okay, so here's the situation for those who haven't seen it. Um, almost all the time when there's a hepatitis A incident um, from what gets reported publicly is there's a there, there's this two week window where if you get an IgG shot, you're uh, it, it serves as protection against the virus that you may have already. Um, uh, you know, consume f- some food and that virus is already in your body. It gives you this protective thing, but you have a two week window. So, um, in Maine, um, there was a story that came out last week that where a health alert was issued by the Maine Center for Disease Control and Prevention about a hepatitis about hepatitis A. They said that a food service worker at a Cumberland County Maine restaurant had tested positive for the virus. They did not identify the location said that the person was working between September 29th and October 11th, which is more than two weeks before the alert came out. So, so from a protective standpoint, they, they didn't name the business because they felt that there was nothing that an individual could do. But further on this health alert, they said, well, patrons at that this unnamed restaurant that you don't know, this is like literally out of their release, you may be at risk for infection. But we're not going to tell you where it is. Right. So so basically, if you ate at a restaurant in Cumberland County, Maine, between September 9th and October 11th, you might have hepatitis. Right. Good. That narrows it down. Yeah. Or And what I wrote was, or maybe not, because their last thing was, anyone experiencing fever, jaundice, nausea, clay-colored stool, or dark urine should go get tested. So they, they said, you might have been exposed, or maybe not, but you should check your poop and urine. Right, right. And definitely, um, whether you're in um, Cumberland County, Maine or not, if you have fever, jaundice, nausea, clay-colored stool, or and or dark urine, you should go get tested. Yeah. No matter where you are. It's amazing. <laughs> right? Because, because those are the symptoms of hepatitis A, jaundice. Right, right. But uh. we're not going to tell you. So now – so here are the two things that – so this, is, this comes back to your question of how do you talk about risk. Mm. Here, poorly, here, apparently. Poorly, yeah. If you're in Maine, poorly. Um, you could um, tell people that here's the restaurant that you're exposed to. Um, if you if you feel any of these or if you're experiencing any of these, go get tested. Or they could say if you ate at any restaurant in this area, check for these things. I I mean, it just le- there's a level of uncertainty that they actually have some certainty here, right? <laughs> They could have told people where they were exposed and if they were exposed. doesn't mean that they were going to have, um, uh, you know, have hepatitis A. Um, and, in fact, they don't even talk about that piece that I prefaced this discussion with where there was a two-week window where you could have done something about it. And now we're just waiting for to see whether you're, you've got any symptoms, which may not even come up for another six weeks. Well, actually, at this point, another four weeks based on – um, you know, the incubation period for, for hepatitis A. So, so it's, it's just a bizarre thing to say. Um, I, two, two pieces of follow-up from this. Mm. Um, there was a, uh, another story that, um, that I haven't blogged about yet, but it came out uh, earlier today saying that um, the Department of Health in Maine is, is taking a lot of uh, flack for this comment. 
And they went on to say that they currently do not have a state foodborne epidemiologist, a state assistant foodborne epidemiologist, or a leader of their hepatitis A team. And so from from the decision-making standpoint, everything fell on someone else's shoulders who may not have been um, as versed in, in the risks or the communication of something like this. That's not a good answer, but it explains some of it. Um, and then also the, the, the article talked about how um, finally they released some information saying, look, the reason why we told you we didn't, we're not releasing the name is because the window is closed. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't believe it. I think that, um, that, that this kind of stuff needs to, needs to be out there public, and I've talked about that a bunch of times, not just because um, it, it – <clears throat> not, not just because it's important from the like managing you individually standpoint, but it's important – in investigating the outbreak and getting more people forward in telling them, Oh man, I, maybe I am experiencing some of these things. Uh, maybe I'm in or out on an, on an outbreak. And I know that I was associated with this, with this restaurant, like keeping that information p- private to me is, is very sketchy. Well, and, and yeah. And then as you were talking about this, it occurred to me that, that this Maine has also been in the news for public health for other reasons, right? Yes. Because, because, and again, we can make it about a little bit about politics since today, as we record, this is uh, American uh, election day, <laughs> opposed to Canadian election day, which is a different day. It's like every day. I think. I don't yeah. know. No, really. I don't I don't even have elections up there. I'm no, not, I'm not sure. We just, uh, whoever's got the most poutine wins. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll link to this story, but basically there was a uh, a nurse uh, who uh, breached a voluntary quarantine for possible Ebola by going for a, a bike ride in Maine. And the governor, Paul LePage, threatened to use the full extent of his authority to compel the nurse to remain in isolation. And, and, and there's a whole backstory to this about basically how this governor is a complete idiot and, and his, <laughs> his, the, 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 the public basically here's, here's the bottom line. If you live in Maine, you shouldn't you should be very concerned about your health because apparently the ability of state government to do anything to manage public health is 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 in doubt i mean again this hepatitis a story confirms that the the fact that i mean public health really does seem to be broken in in maine near as i can tell from my my cursory reading of the news i don't know maybe can you can you offer any any more detailed commentary than that ben no i i, I will confirm that okay I we wrote something a while ago about Maine and Barf Blog about problems they had. I can't remember. Let me see if I can find it. I just mm-hmm. remember something else was broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. But but I think that like the state epidemiologist resigned. Oh, sorry, here it yeah. is. Maine, okay. The Maine legislators. So so it's broken because they only have eleven health inspectors for the whole state. Uh. The entire state of Maine, there are eleven health inspectors, and this quote, quote this is a problem for some Maine legislators. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you think? <laughs> I mean, Maine's not Maine's not big, but uh, it, it's not it's not tiny. It's not. I'm little- I'm pretty sure. I don't know this, Ben, but I I bet eleven health inspectors are probably not enough for the whole state. Um, the state now employs eleven inspectors, each of whom is responsible for inspecting six hundred to eight hundred establishments a year. Huh, I, I bet they're probably not going to be able to do that. I, I think not. Um, the it's phenomenal, but the best is um, the person 
there are people that lobby against this, including Richard lobby for this. Richard Groton, who is um, a, a former chief executive officer of the restaurant industry trade group, said millions of people eat in Maine restaurants every year, and very few have gotten seriously ill. He urged the committee to maintain the status quo, which he called a good system. Well, there you go. That's good. I mean, yeah, it's and 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 here and here's another thing. Um, the the salmonella incidence rate in Maine is under the national average. I bet if they fired a few more epidemiologists, <laughs> the the incidence rate would go down. It would be way under. It would be zero. Be way under. Yeah. I mean, well, I you know, I there was once a great a great talk. Uh, um, by by one of our CDC colleagues, and I, I think he showed a graph that showed that, that the number of foodborne disease outbreaks was directly correlated with the number of epidemiologists. So, Go I mean, figure. and it's a positive correlation. More epidemiologists means more um, outbreaks. Get rid of the epidemiologists, no <laughs> Cle- more illness. Clearly, they're, ca- they're the ones causing the problem. Oh, they, I wish they'd wash their hands more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maine. I almost went there, Don. You know that? Like just to for fun? No, no. Like I had an interview at the University oh. of Maine as a food, yeah. food safety dude there. Yeah. Didn't get the job. I would have taken it. It's close to Canada. It, it's it's extremely close to Canada. Way further away from the part of Canada that I grew up in and that I currently live in. But yes, yeah, close to Canada. Close to the Tim Hortons on the in New Brunswick. Yeah, we we would we went there for for summer vacation a few a few years um, as as a kid as I was growing up. As I recall, it was quite nice. It's, I think it's a lovely state to uh, to visit. I wouldn't eat there. I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't. Oh man, we're gonna get some restaurant inspector. And one of the eleven is. Hey, yeah, good. We'd like to hear from him. Yeah, the, the eleven. We got we got your back. We think you ought to be twenty two. Yep, double it up. I can't believe so. Eight hundred. Let's look. You're the math guy. Let's let's say you're a health inspector and you work mm-hmm. what, 260 days a year. Mm-hmm. Is that reasonable if we take out all of our uh, sure. weekends? Sure. Um, and so you have to do say 800 inspections. 800 it's like four four restaurant inspections a day. Yeah, and and you you have to inspect. No, sorry, you have to do 800. That's if you do four restaurants. If you do them once a year, so we have our law in North Carolina is you do. You inspect the same site four times a year. Mm. Wow! So, so you, yeah, that's you, a lot of inspections, Ben. It is. I don't know. A lot, a lot, a lot of taxpayer dollars going to waste there. Clearly, you could you could cut way back to the main level. I wonder if we could just. I'm going to mention that when I talk to the environmental health specialist next week. I was like, you know, I know you guys think that things are are bad here. We should all move up to Maine because there's 11 inspectors. We could just get you down to 11. Man. Yeah. Well, we, we we inspect the Rutgers University dining halls twelve times a year, once a month, <laughs> whether they need it or not. Man, you, you don't tell them that because May, Maine's going to want you to drive up there. <laughs> what do you guys do in the other days? <laughs> Could you? Oh man, uh, Don, I think we better call this a podcast. It's devolving. I, I think uh, I think this is a show, Ben. This is a show. Hey, thanks again. Good to uh, good to finally get get back in the in the groove with you. Yeah, this was fun. This was fun. This was a good one. Absolutely. Good good stuff. Um, I haven't looked on iTunes for a while. I assume that no one's rating us anymore and we become irrelevant. So yeah, <laughs> that's so, not the truth. We do, we, do we do have a lot of people that are subscribing to our newsletter. So that's fantastic. We appreciate you doing that. If you have not 
um, uh, checked uh, out the reviews of the podcast in iTunes, please do go and leave us a review. It's one way that uh, people can find the show and it, it, it helps. I mean, if you're, if you're enjoying the show, wouldn't you want to share that information with other people? So please go and leave us a review. Uh, let us know what you think. If you think, uh, you know, if you think one of us should talk more or the other one of us should talk less or we should have, you know, more talk about food safety or less, you know, more, who knows, maybe, maybe you want more talk about Maine. Um, um, you know, maybe if, other if New England or, or, states, or yeah. So let let us know. Uh, send us send us an email. Send us feedback uh, from our webpage. Uh, subscribe to our, um, our our newsletter. Uh, rate us in iTunes. All of those things are very helpful to us, and we really do appreciate each and every one of you that listens. Uh, we uh, heard from a couple of listeners at the. NeuroCore meeting. So thanks to them for uh, letting us know that they listen and, and that they enjoy the podcast. So we, we thank them. We thank each and every one of you uh, very much for, for listening. Uh, we, we would honestly, we would probably do it without you, but it's, it's better. It's nicer it's knowing with that you. Uh, some of you are, are, are listening. Um, I, I would do it just to talk with Ben every week, but it's, 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 it's fantastic to know that, that more than just a couple of shut-ins uh, listen to us. Yes, absolutely. So just uh, let us know what's going on and what you want us to talk about. But uh, all right. I think that's it, Don. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye, Ben. Bye-bye. So this is good after our discussion. Mm. Um, did you, do you know based on the iTunes algorithm of popularity? Yes. What our most popular um, episode is? I do not know. It is Food Safety Talk thirty nine. Huh. Which was? Um, oh gosh, I just lost the title for it. It is the um, De- Des Moines is known for its scallops. Scallops. <laughs> I wonder why that is. And then it's weird. We go through these. If you Forty look, was all in on boogers. I don't know why that's not our most I don't popular. Know. If Forty three was there, um, but but it's weird. Like there's like some basically between episode fifty one and uh-huh. sixty two zero. Um, no one's listened to them. Huh. But I, I know that's not true. There's got to be something weird with these algorithms. Yeah. And then the sixty episode sixty three, the great one where we talked about Wayne Gretzky. Gretzky um, is uh, is our most popular one in the last little while. Huh? I can't. This was number what like seventy four or something, right? Seventy seventy four, seventy five, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs>
Uh, oh, it's fun. It's Mr. Mom reference for those of you following along. It is. You know what? You know what's funny about that? I don't know the. I don't know Mr. Mom, but I know that reference. I know that reference. And I know because they did it. At, uh, they called it out on uh, Back to Work, I think. I, yeah, and and it's used all the time. The it's a great quote. It is. Whatever it takes. Uh, hey, um, I told you this in person, but I'm going to see mm. Sloan next week, and I'm so excited. Nice. And and I'm so excited that I actually looked up their set lists for this tour so I can figure out all the songs they might play and be all primed up. Mm. <laughs> How nerdy is that? Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty nerdy. Do you have to watch the Sonic Highways because it's amazing. Oh, and, oh yes, yes, yes. I started watching it. It's very good. Oh, it's so, so good. And... Um, there, there's a lot of like, not productivity, but creative creativity mm, stuff mm-hmm, that's in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so it's so good. It's like very compelling. Dave Grohl is becoming more and more my like rock god icon hero. I love him. Mm-hmm. He just seems like a cool guy. I'd love to have him on the podcast. I want to just hang out with him. Think He's he'd, probably free. You think he'd do it? I'm sure he would. I bet. You, I mean, everyone everyone likes to eat. <laughs> Right, everyone eats. Everyone eats. Yeah. Don. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. He's he he has impressed me. I mean, I'm not like a huge Nirvana or Foo Fighters fan, but anything I've ever heard about him and the way he works and his process and everything, it, it seems very impressive. And and the fact that he they decided to do this particular you know concept for making an album and then they made a TV show about it, I think it's fantastic. It's amazing. It's super super cool. Did you ever see the Sound City documentary? No. All right, I'll, I'll see if I can wrangle that up for you too. Okay. So th- it's like uh, I, I, this is where I think this um, concept of Sonic Highways came from, where he um, went to a studio in Hollywood that made a whole bunch of, or th- where a whole bunch of really good songs in the seventies were made, and um, and he just like interviewed everybody around the studio mm. and and people that used it and why they liked it so much and the owner and it was just it was super cool and he's just I he's like um one of those guys one you know one of those individuals where he he's artistically from a music standpoint amazing but also really is a great storyteller and gets mm-hmm. documentaries and oh it's just it's great i'm in, i'm in love with that guy too oh speaking of documentaries did i tell you about jodorowsky's dune you did and guess did. what's guess what's on my ipad oh ready, you got ready it to watch got it got it yesterday All right i'm ready to watch it tomorrow very good. Yeah, I'll be uh, on a flight tomorrow, and that's that is that's number that's that's all I got. I'm taking it, so good. I'm re- ready to watch that. I highly recommended. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, hi- highly recommended documentary on a movie that was never made. Um, just yeah, can't can't say enough about it. Fantastic. Saw it on a plane. Blew me away. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's all I got for you. All right. You got anything else? I think that's a show. It's a show. We're in the, let's wrap it. It's an after dark. Put it in the can. Okay, Don. Well, that's great. Um, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> okay. Bye, Ben. <laughs> Bye.